Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We have a topical message this morning, taking a little break from our expositional study in the book of Acts. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. The book of Joshua, chapter 5. It is the sixth book in the Bible. The message is entitled, The Man Who Was There. And while my text is verse 13, we will stand and read verses 13 through 15 for context. So if you have your Bibles and you're ready or not, please stand for the reading of the word. Joshua chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? So he said, No. But as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Please be seated. Certainly rich with information that you, you want to preach on all of it, at least I do, but you can't, I don't have time. I don't know why more sermons are not preached from this amazing book that, incidentally, we would not have a book of Joshua if it were not for the failure of Moses. God causes all things to work together for the good. The man who was there, it has a dual meaning, my title, but it concentrates on Joshua. And by that, to concentrate on the man Joshua, we concentrate on what God is doing in the man. It always goes back to God. It is always all about the Lord. And that's why we love the scriptures so much. The text is verse 13 of chapter 5. I will reread it. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Well, I wouldn't recommend approaching a man with a sword out, especially a stranger, not like this. But, uh, of course, there is a spiritual activity surrounding everything that is taking place in this exchange. This man is not human, the one that Joshua is speaking to. He is divine. This is a visible manifestation of God in human form. What we are getting out of this is worship. Worship precedes warfare in the name of the Lord. And it was not wasted on Joshua. This experience, just you know, as Christians, you can have the Lord do something very uh, unusual and and beautiful at the same time. And that's as far as it goes, because you go no further. And it's sort of wasted on you like that. And we have to guard against that. Well, it's not wasted on this man on this day. And there alone is a lesson for us all. When it came time to conquer... That heavily fortified city, Jericho, and it was impregnable. Joshua withdrew 
And the implication is to pray, to consider what was ahead of him. This was the first conflict in the promised land. This was the first city that had to fall, the first big conflict. It's not curiosity, but craving that belongs to the spirit-filled servant. If you come to the scripture and study it, and your, your main focus is to satisfy curiosities, you're missing it. The craving to know God, to be his friend, to be comfortable with him because his blessings are on you. This is what we crave. We crave that Christ-likeness in our own lives. And if you have been one that is just centered on answering questions and satisfying curiosities, you might want to rethink the spirit of it all. For Joshua here, as he is contemplating Jericho, he knows there's no military solution. And he craves God. It's a part of his life. It has filled him. He's filled with the spirit. We'll come to that in a moment. But earlier, earlier before this event takes place, God confirmed to Joshua that Moses would not return from the mountain. We remember that Moses went up atop the mountain and and God um, took him home to heaven. And God wanted to make that official with Joshua. He's not coming back. Just as the prophecy, just as he told you it would happen, it has happened. Joshua chapter 1 verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. There it is. Make no mistake, Joshua. Now it's you. He continues, now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Imagine the void. Moses had been their leader. He had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. It's been over 40 years. And now he's gone. It's a big void. It's an empty space in the hearts and minds of everyone. But that vacancy that Moses left was there for Joshua to fill. Well, that's true for us. There are times in serving God, there is a vacancy. There's an opportunity. Someone has moved on for good or bad reasons, whatever it may be. It may be God saying to you, I need you to fill the void. Well, that's the case with Joshua. So Joshua, in the story is now the land giver. Moses was the law giver. He gave the people the law of God from God. Joshua is going to give them the land, God's promised land. And God has sent him to do this. And here, God meets him. God meets him before he arrives at the battlefield. In Joshua 1, again, No man, God said to Joshua, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. We take hold of that verse and we say, well, does that apply to me? I think it does, but it does not always apply to me the way that I would like it to apply to me. You see, a man can stand before me and he can physically conquer me, but not spiritually. So in that sense, no man stands before the believer. But, of course, in Joshua's case, God meant it all the way around. No one's going to stand before you physically. You'll take these cities down. 
And no man will stand before you spiritually. You will not be um, converted to some false religion. In chapter 3, the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And so what I'm establishing or attempting to from these two verses is God is saying, you are filling the vacancy. I am the one doing it. You are my man. You are my servant. Joshua is the man who was there. And he had a history of being the man who was there. He was not the missing man. We never find him missing. Now, God does not mean that Joshua will be a second Moses. That... That's not necessary, not even possible. And yet, the people made it a capital crime to disobey Joshua. What kind of leadership is that? I mean, that is incredible that they would be so taken by this man, Joshua, this second generation of Jewish people. I'm going to pick it up and read it out loud because it is so fantastic. In verse 16 of chapter 1, So they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only Yahweh, your God, be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Isn't that amazing? This is not that first generation of naysayers that came out of Egypt that said, oh, we're grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants. These are their children. So much for generational curses. If there were a generational curse, that this generation wouldn't be able to enter in, but they do enter in. And we hear their words, and we're moved by them. Achan, he disobeyed Joshua, and Achan was stoned to death. That's just one example that we know of where they executed uh, that pledge that they made to Joshua. Well, on the strength of this dynamic first chapter in the book of Joshua, on the strength of, of this chapter, everything is charged with the power of God moving forward as we consider his life all the way until he goes home to be with the Lord himself. All of it has as its foundation not only that first chapter in the book of Joshua, but the life that precedes, as the story goes, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What man did God choose to fill the vacancy that Moses left? The man who was there. The man who was born a slave in Egypt, just like Moses. The man who became a servant to Moses. The man who served as a soldier in the wilderness. The man who was sent as a spy into the promised land of Canaan. And the man that was appointed the shepherd over the nation when God took Moses home. And we first meet him, the first time we hear his name. It is when he is being sent to war as commander of the Israelite army. Just two months, about two months out of Egypt as slaves, the Amalekites attacked the children of Israel. And Moses responds, and in his response, he sends Joshua to pick the men of war to take with him to fight and defeat the wicked Amalekites. 
So here is Joshua appointed as field commander, and he engaged and defeated the enemy. And after the battle, very likely not during or before, did he know, did he learn about the spiritual warfare that covered the field of victory. He's out on the field fighting the war. He does not know that Moses is up on the mountain watching. He knows that part, but that when his arms go up, Joshua's forces are repelled uh, when, when they go down. But when Moses' arms go up, Joshua's forces repel the enemy, beat back the enemy. And he does not know that a man named Hur and a man named Aaron are holding the arms of Moses up because they were becoming weary. This is what spiritual warfare is. It's unpleasant. It's difficult. And it requires help. But Joshua was the man on the battlefield. Worship during war. That's what was taking place. In the midst of conflict, there was worship. Maybe you. Maybe you have some great conflict in your life. Do you still have your altar to the Lord? Do you have your place of sacrifice and prayer and worship? These things are supposed to continue no matter what you face in this life. Because worship has everything to do with everything after this life. Of the over one million men in the camp of Israel, Moses chose Joshua to be his aide-de-camp, his, his assistant, his right-hand man, to accompany him to the mountain of God. Of a million men, Joshua is the man who was there. And Joshua lived and served in the shadow of that great lawgiver, and we never hear a peep from him. We hear it from others. We hear it from, from uh, Dothan. We hear it from Miriam, his own sister. We hear others complaining about Moses, never from the lips of Joshua. Now I know time doesn't allow for me to get into the name of Joshua too deeply. I'll come to it in a moment. But I want to read from Exodus thirty-three eleven. Yahweh spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. He'd come down from the mountain or he'd go to the tabernacle and return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Yahweh was central to this man's life. He loved being at the house of God, at that place, of point, that point of contact. Joshua is the man who was there for Moses and the man before the Lord. And it was Moses who changed the name. Of Joshua, originally, he was named Hoshea by his parents, salvation. But with great insight and affection, Moses modified the name of Joshua from Hoshea to Yahshua, which is Yahweh saves. He elevates the name. It is profound from the Christian perspective. In Numbers 13, we read it. And Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun, Yahshua. Which is the Hebrew for the Greek name, Jesus. Moses loved and admired the man that was his assistant. These things are very attractive to any believer. I love this kind of stuff. I want it. I crave these things. They don't just satisfy my curiosity. Huh, that's an interesting Bible story. To me, I see the fingerprints of God all on this, and I want those fingerprints to be all over my life. 
God appointed Joshua to succeed to follow Moses in life and after. Numbers 27, verse 18. Yahweh said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar, the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. How much, is, how, much, how much humanity is into that? We do this when we anoint a pastor here in the church. We bring them before the congregation. We lay our hands on them. They receive authority. Some of the authority. Just like it was done in the days of Moses. And so it continues because it's good. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that he was full of wisdom. Well, the two go together. When it came his turn to choose his lot, his land, while they were subduing the inhabitants, subduing, pardon me, doing if you're from Brooklyn, but while they were subduing the inhabitants of the land, he asked for Timnath Surah. It was hill country in the territory of Ephraim, the tribe he is from. His own tribe, half of uh, some from the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, they complained to him when the land was being divided up between the peoples. They said, in the valleys of the territory you've given to us, they have iron chariots. We can't take them out. And we are a great people. We need more. Joshua said, well, if you are a great people, why aren't you taking them out? He doesn't say it like that, but he said, well, then if you're such a great people, go take the hill country. Conquer them there where there are no chariots. There was no comeback they could give to that. But when his time came, he practiced what he preached. And he took this territory of Timnath Serah, which is in the hill country. He practiced what he preached. He took what he told them to take. And that very hill country that he conquered and took as his possession, he turned it into a city. He put it on the map. We pick it up in Joshua 19. According to the word of Yahweh, they came, they, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath, Surah, in the mountains of Ephraim. And he built the city and dwelt in it. Do the victor go the spoils. Remember these people that they were taking out of the land, were wicked people. And they were the instruments of God to judge them, just as years later the Assyrians would be instruments of God to judge the Jews, and then the Babylonians. Because he was sure of God's presence, he could do all the things I've been talking to you about him. And that is, that is the thrust of the man who is there. He knew God was there. And so he could be where he needed to be. He was never a sideliner. We don't read of Joshua sitting out anything. He was there for it all. In the midst, we might even say, in the thick of it. God retrieved Moses from the wilderness. Because there, Moses had to learn just how insignificant he was. That's the one that God uses. The one that gives the glory to God. 
and knows that every good thing that they may enjoy comes from him. Joshua, on the other hand, was not in isolation. He was the man there already. He was amongst the people. God did not have to retrieve him from anywhere. What made Moses and Joshua stand out amongst all the people, what makes them stand out to us to this day, is both came to understand and value highly the known presence of God. Yes, we know God is present, but do we believe that he stands there with his sword ready on behalf of his causes? As Joshua stood before Jericho wondering how to take the city, God knew that Joshua knew there was no way humanly possible to take down Jericho. And so God comes to him and he reveals himself to him. He says, I'm with you and I am the commander and I am here over the interest of God. Of course, being God, the manifestation of God. Joshua got that. And how do we know that? How do we draw this conclusion? Well, because he falls down and he worships him. And the worship is received. And it had, it not been, had it been any other way, it would have been blasphemy. But it was not blasphemy. It was perfect. This is what made these men stand out. This is what made them remarkable. And still, they are remarkable to us. Moses, Joshua, and apostates. We, we are confronted with these things when we come to Scripture. And others, there are others, of course, other than Moses and Joshua. But we're talking about these men this morning and the apostates because it has everything to do with not sensing the presence of God. Moses, that great servant, The presence of God meant everything to him. In fact, at one point when God was going to send his people forward and send his angel to go with them, Moses protested. Then he said to him, Exodus 33, 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. What tone did he use? What was happening there? I think he was very reverent, but I think on the inside, the passion was intense. Please don't ask me to even go if you don't go with, with us. Exodus 3, verse 5. God doing the same thing to Moses as he would do to Joshua. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. And so there, both men have this encounter. This visible encounter. At least In Moses' case, the bush that did not burn, but the voice that did speak, they have this encounter with God, that God was present, that he was there, and as Christians, we must never lose that sense, no matter how defeated we may feel, no matter how neglected, passed over, or cast down we may feel, we are going to be the servant that is there because the master is there. It was identical for Joshua, as we read in Joshua chapter 1, chapter 5. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. This is New Testament language also. And then chapter 15, again, uh, pardon me, chapter 5, verse 15. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. 
And Joshua did so. You see, identical. These identical experiences. Both men experienced them, and both men went on to serve as examples for us. It is identical for us. The presence of God realized in the New Testament. Well, one place that stands out is at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen knew that God was present. That's why they couldn't refute him. Acts chapter 7, but he, as they're about, as they're in the process of killing him, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See, he had that realization that the presence of God was there, even, even as he was dying. Then there's the thief on the cross. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, it didn't start out that way. That thief was a naysayer just like the other one. And then the realization came to him. As he watched, as he observed, as he, you know, it was just too late for him. He wasn't going home that day. He was no longer under the influence of anybody else's teaching. It was that outlaw on the cross and the facts that were in front of him. And the fact was for him that this is the Son of God. And he submitted in the presence of God. Then there's Paul the Apostle, a man going around uh, persecuting Christians. And God confronted him with that. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? Well, you only come to that kind of, those kind of questions when you understand the presence of the Lord. I think every Christian, it would not be bad to start every day to say, who are you, Lord, in the sense that I want more knowledge, not in the sense that I don't know you, because we do know him. But also, what do you want me to do? And if not, what do you want me to do? Because I already know what I'm going to do. Please help me do what you have revealed to me. What makes it happen for Moses, for Joshua, for Stephen, for Christ, uh, for Paul? Truth and love alloyed into faith. I think this is very important. You know, it's very easy to talk about love, Christian love. It's very difficult to always, always flash it forward. People are going to make it hard for you. Life will make it hard for us. This blend was found in heavy concentrations in the life of these two men and all the saints that we admire. Truth and love alloyed into faith. I don't know how you can get faith if you don't have truth and you don't have that, this agape love, which is an exotic love. It is the only love known to man that comes directly from the throne of God. The unbeliever cannot have this kind of love unless they become a believer. It is imported, you could say. It is not common. You don't stumble upon it. You don't earn it. It is given. And it is a blend. Truth, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, speaking of what belonged to this man, what made him tick, we might say. What can I learn from him also that I can do? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, this Bible, you need to know it. He says, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
But you can have bad success. This is the problem of the psalmist in Psalm 73. There were people that did not love the Lord were having worldly success, but that wasn't the good success. He discovered that in that psalm. This book of the law shall not depart. You need to know it, Joshua, just not, not know about it, not just know what other people think. What do you think when you come to the Word of God? I think this is vital for all of us. The truth, I have to have it. And Joshua also was exposed to love. You see, when we come to the Old Testament, we might miss that because it's not as pronounced as it is in the New Testament. Not that it isn't there any, in any less force. Joshua chapter 22, verse 5. But take heed, Joshua says to the people, to do the commandment, that is the truth, the word, the law which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you to love the Lord your God, with, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. He is saying there, it's not enough to have the scripture. You got to have the scripture, but you got to have more. That more is love. And I'll develop that a little bit more in a moment because the Bible develops it. In chapter 23, he again tells the people, this is so important. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love Yahweh your God. Well, you take that love for God out and you're left with a Judas Iscariot. Because you wouldn't treat anyone the way Judas treated Christ if you loved them. And then there is faith, which is the product of the truth and the love, the outcome. Joshua chapter 1, again, verse 6. Be strong, God said to him, and of good courage. Bad courage is courage that doesn't need God. It's courage. The world produces men who are courageous. But good courage comes out of faith. Those who are brave because they trust the Lord. It continues here. Be strong of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong. Only be strong, he continues, and very courageous that you may observe to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. That would make him straight. And that would make it narrow. And then he says that you may prosper wherever you go. Spiritually speaking. Joshua was told to be strong and very courageous in service. And these realizations come from that perpetual presence of God that is recognized by man. What good is it to us, if God is there, but we don't recognize it. The one that knows that God is always there with them, no matter what, as did Stephen, that is the one whose faith will not be overrun by circumstances, by pain, by defeat of the world, by suffering, whatever you come up with. Uh, no matter what it is, you fill in the blank. You're not going to find something. That will say, yeah, that will overrun truth, love, and faith. Joshua saw him with his sword in his hand. Not indifferent. You're not indifferent with your sword out. He was not passive. 
He's not reckless. He's not whimsical. But strong, armed, ready, and most important, poised in total control. Truth without love tends to morph into unbelief. I want to take a passage from Matthew that is an end times passage. But you may be, ooh, ooh, end times. I'm very curious about that. But that's not where the craving's going. We want to talk about faith. Because what good is it if you know the end times, but your faith is raggedy? And so we always want to build up the faith. We want to know what the Bible has to say about the end times, the prophecies. We do want to know those things, but there's more. Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus telling his disciples what's going to happen in the future. And he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now he's looking beyond his apostles. They're included in this, but it's down through the ages. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Well, who is offended? The make-believers or the apostates? They're not the same. A make-believer never believes. An apostate falls away. And so he is saying... When the pressure comes upon the church and persecution arises, there are going to be those that are offended against God because he's not protecting them. And they're going to walk away from the faith. You see, they may have had truth, but they didn't have the love. And they therefore did not have the faith. And then he says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. How can you deceive people unless you are loveless? That's what the false prophets are going to be doing. They're going to be using Jesus' name to do it. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. How am I going to endure to the end? Well, my love can't grow cold. The martyrs, when they go to their graves, they love the Lord. They don't go to their graves calling on the Lord And disliking him at the same time. They're sold out for Christ. And they're not giving up. Why did these turn away? Because they lacked love that belongs with truth. You can't separate the two. It is the heart and the head. You can't live without a head and you can't live without a heart. Though I've met people who have really tried. You must join the love to truth and you know it. There's not a Christian here that would object to that. I don't believe it. I do not believe there's a Christian, well, I don't need the love. Or I don't need the truth. But there may be some who lose sight of the fact that they're moving forward without one of those two. And therefore their faith is clumsy. To back this up from Scripture, and to not uh, take it out of context, but to leave it where it belongs. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8. You see those who saw the church being persecuted and left the church and became apostates and unbelievers love never fails. They would not have failed if they loved the Lord as did Moses, as did Joshua as was emphasized by me this morning from from the scriptures. 
He continues, Paul does, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And so he's saying, the love is the thing. And if you have that love built on truth, then these other virtues of the Christian faith will shine. Love of truth is vital, but it is not enough by itself. What would happen if you found somebody who knew the Bible inside out, could quote any part of it at any time, but had not love? You'd be standing in front of Satan, would you not? Because that's what he did with Christ. He's misquoting scripture. You think any love was coming out of his heart? Agape love. Again, the only imported love. You can love your family. You can love your profession. You can love uh, pizza. As a sinner, as a carnal person, as a natural man, you can do that. But agape, that's different. You must be born again. If I only have God's truth, then I don't have the truth. If that's all I have. Now, some of you may be recoiling at this thing. Well, what are you saying? Are you true? No, listen to what I'm saying. Because the Bible is saying that. Now, I'll come back to that. If I only have God's love, then my love is defective. I need truth, too. Or else how would I know what to love and how to love? How would I know what is sin? Without this blend, gains from God are voided out. Well, where is that in the Bible? 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 13. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing, end quote. Now, who would come up and say, well, pastor, I disagree. I think you can have truth and you don't need love. And you'll be fine. Who would come up and say, ah, no, no, I disagree. I think you can have love, but you don't need any of the truth. Well, then what goes back to what God was saying? Love the Lord your God. Meditate on his word. What is the outcome of putting those two together, truth and love? Faith. And I want to point out some of those things too, and I'm almost done. Truth with love builds genuine faith when the winds beat on us. Remember Jesus said, because it was founded on a rock, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because of that rock. Peter said that the genuineness of your faith, faith in the context of Persecution and suffering, that first letter of Peter's to persecuted Christians. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious, that Greek word for precious there also means beloved. Being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the very thing the people are not doing in Matthew 24 in the end times when they fall away because the church is being persecuted. The 144,000 Jews that will preach the word, the converts that will come, and the beheadings that will take place, they will allow themselves to be subject to persecution because they love the Lord, because they know His truth. We can have God's promises in our hands and refuse, refuse to believe them. The other day I'm walking across my backyard and I had a little cluster of grapes and I'm reminded of this. I'm reminded of the the Jews that had the promises of God in their very hands. Numbers chapter 13, verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole, 
They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. They were loaded with the fruit that God promised was in that land and promised for them to take. By the way, it was not Moses' idea to send in these spies. That was the people's reasonable input. Doubt disguised as prudence. Well, we should spy the land out. Moses should have said no. We're not spying out anything. We know where we're supposed to go. If we want to spy it out for military objectives, that's one thing. But there's no need to spy it out for anything else. And Joshua will come along. He will send spies in for that reason. Spy out the land. Find their fortifications. Bring information back. But the people. See, the people's church is the church at Laodicea. That's what that word means. It's run by the people. In God's name, even though he's outside trying to get in. We have to be very careful about that. Who needs anointed men in the pulpit if you can just do whatever you want according to the reasonable devil? Truth, love, and choice. What it comes down to. And this is how Joshua closes it up. Chapter 23, verse 11. He says, take careful heed to yourselves that you love Yahweh your God. How do you say that without passion? Even if it's not in your your tone, it's in your heart. How do you say you shall love the Lord your... Eh, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Can you say that casually? I don't, I don't know that you can and mean it. Joshua 24, 14. Fear Yahweh. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And those who worship the Lord will worship Him in spirit and in truth, Jesus said to the woman at Sychar. Joshua 24, 15, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Well, you can't do a study on Joshua and leave that out. There are always wrong things and right things to serve. Find out what God says about them. Make your choice and make your move. That's what the Bible tells us. And I'm very grateful for it. Let's pray. Our Father... And may indeed we have love for one another. May we get to the bottom of things that are wrong with us. May we too look at our private Jericho and consider how to take it down. And there may we have an encounter with you that is a blessing. Not only to us, but ultimately through us also. Your word is magnificent, and your love is the prize. And together these produce in us a desire to serve you because we know you're with us and we call it faith. If you've been listening this morning and you are a Christian and you love the Bible but you don't love any further than that, then come up to prayer at the end of the service and ask that God would give you a heart to love. I do all the time. I try to because I know I'm, I'm flawed. If you are the Christian that thinks you can love with a reckless love and not know the restrictions and the permissions of the scripture, then you too need to come up for prayer. And if you've never given your life to Christ, you have not the truth and you're dead in your sin. You have an opportunity, though, 
to lay hold of the truth that Jesus Christ died for sinners and invites you to come. You can have him impart this love to you based on his truth. And you can have the faith that has served the church well through the millenniums. If you would say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break your laws, your rules. And that guilt is upon me. And the judgment will be the consequence. But I ask you to forgive me. I ask you, because you're the one that died, to take my penalty upon yourself. And you're the one that rose again to demonstrate that you have power to forgive those who come to you, who believe in you, who trust you. And here I am. And now, Father, if anyone's made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they be very vocal about it. And may their journey in Christ begin even now. These things we commit into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.